0: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week... Journalist Joan Grillo talks from Mexico City about his new book, Gangster Warlords, Drug Dollars, Killing Fields and the New Politics of Latin America. Johan Grillo has reported on Latin America since 2001 for international media, including Time Magazine, Reuters, CNN, The Associated Press, PBS NewsHour, Global Post, The Houston Chronicle, the BBC World Service and The Sunday Telegraph. His first book, El Narco, Inside Mexico's Criminal Insurgency, was translated into five languages and was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and the Orwell Prize. Yohan's a native of Britain, but he currently lives in Mexico City. We're going to be talking about his latest book, which is Gangster Warlords, Drug Dollars, Killing Fields and the New Politics of Latin America. So, Yohan, welcome to Little Atoms. Fantastic to be here. I mean, from the distance of the of the UK, people will be familiar with drug cartels formerly i guess are more frequently in Colombia, but now more often in mexico and mexico obviously is where you're based and we're going to come back to mexico later on i want to go over a few of the less familiar places before we get there but first of all let's talk about how you ended up in mexico
2: so i came to mexico in 2000 like uh... Many young Brits wanting to be a foreign journalist, I realized one of the best ways to start was actually go abroad and start working for local newspapers in English in those countries. So I really fancied Latin America. I'd met a lot of Latin American people. I'd, I lived in Spain for a year and spoke some Spanish. And I discovered there was a newspaper in Mexico City called The News that hired uh, English speakers. So I got a one-way ticket and came to Mexico with no experience in journalism at that time in 2000 actually took a four or five months uh, teaching English, just getting myself stabilised and then got a job in the newspaper and it went from there. And I've been here, you know, it was 15 years ago. So you know, I had the idea of being here for about two years and I've been here for 15 years now.
1: And so how long did it take before you sort of got onto the beat of the gangs and the, the, you know, the euphemistic war on drugs? So when I first came, I had a bit of a romantic idea of Latin America in, in the late
2: 20th century, you know, thinking of, I'd seen the film Salvador by Oliver Stone. I thought I'd be running around with left-wing grillers, you know, fighting right-wing dictatorships and that kind of thing. And I discovered a very different world from that, you know, that had largely finished. Most of the guerrilla groups had disbanded. Some of them become politicians or even presidents. Most countries have become democracies. I arrived in Mexico right as it was moving into a real democracy after 71 years of one-party rule. Um, but this issue of drugs I found very interesting. Now, I grew up uh, around the Brighton area, and there was a lot of drug use that I grew up with back in the 1980s and early 1990s. Heroin, cocaine, you know, ecstasy, all kinds of things. knew a few guys who, who died of drug overdoses, a lot of people who took drugs and went on to regular lives. And so for me, it was interesting arriving in Mexico right away. One of the first things that grabbed my attention was arriving in Mexico and seeing this connection between being from a country with a lot of drug use and arriving in a country which produces and traffics drugs and seeing that link. And right away, I was very fascinated by the idea of these drug cartels. Like, who are these people, these figures that are like mysteries? You hear about them in songs you hear they're making $30 billion a year, but you can't seem to see them. They're like ghosts. So uh, this newspaper I began covering, I covered some you know, really interesting things, like a, a court-martial of two generals who were being prosecuted for working with drug traffickers and sat right through the five-day court-martial and you know, got this kind of fascinating information. And then I, I began to work, um, after the news, I began to work for an American newspaper, the Houston Chronicle. And the Houston Chronicle, based in, in Houston, Texas, of course, was very interested in the violence that was breaking out on the Mexico-Texas border. And around 2004, 2005, I went, started going up very regularly to a city called Nuevo Laredo on the north of Mexico, on the Texas border, where this violence was really breaking out. And it was a kind of new type of violence there. It wasn't the violence between just regular gang members anymore. It was more like paramilitary units fighting, people with RPG sevens, automatic rifles, military-style tactics, and I started covering that very intensely for this Texas newspaper, and that was when I started getting more deeply into this issue. and And we didn't realize it at the time, but this was the beginning of a new type of violence that would spread across Mexico and actually devastate the country, really shake Mexico, cause more than a hundred thousand deaths and disappearances, uh, refugees you know, a lot of pain, a real human rights disaster. And that was really a nucleus of this starting right there.
1: And the book is called Gangster Warlords. Now, you've mentioned, you know, you had this romantic idea of of South America as being like this this sort of land, as it used to be, you know, the Cold War was sort of raging back in the day, and it was a a land of left-wing guerrilla armies. And as you just mentioned, these drug gangs now are are like paramilitaries, and, the death toll in these countries is often higher than in some little local civil war somewhere. Why do we not think of these as as warlords? Why do we not describe these incidents as civil wars? So yeah, you gives uh, a deep, uh, complicated question at the heart of this and
2: and it's something I explore a lot in the book, Gangster Warlords, covering this. And, and when I was covering this in Mexico, it, it got to a stage that I realized this is obviously way beyond crime. You know, I covered one incident with 49 bodies, all decapitated, all with their hands and feet chopped off, dumped on a road. I covered a mass grave with 193 bodies. The single... Gun battles with 500 cartel gunmen fighting 2,000 federal police. So, things that really go beyond what we can understand as regular crime. And the total death tolls, I mean, more than 100,000 in Mexico, across Latin America and the Caribbean over 10 years, more than a million homicides. So, absolutely incredible. However, these are not, they don't resemble what we understand as regular civil wars as we saw a lot of civil wars in the 20th century the sides are often very very blurred you know it's not like uh, when you have a, a classic civil war a spanish civil war a syrian civil war where you had some more clear sides actually the, the syrian civil war is a very very complicated civil war in itself but a lot of um civil wars where you had a more clear start dates to them And more clear sides fighting, and sides fighting with a more clear objective of trying to control the government. In somewhere like Mexico, this violence we've seen now, you've got more than 10 different criminal cartels with their paramilitary groups. It's a bit unclear when that, you could say, that fighting really started or when it went over the edge to reach this war level of violence. And the cartels don't have. An ideology. If they were fighting with an ideology, we'd probably say, "Oh, these guys are insurgents." But they don't have an ideology. They're not into radical Islam. They're not into Marxism. They're not into a real nationalist project. They're fighting the government to defend their criminal business interests, and that's one of the big differences. At the same time, for many people in this area, it doesn't really matter what they're fighting about. If you're a family in an area you're getting turfed out your house by gunmen, if you're there's a massacre in your neighbourhood and you flee that neighbourhood. Then you know, to you it's a war zone. To many police or soldiers I talk to who are out there on the streets facing this, and they actually have to deal with the reality of fighting armed groups who are ambushing them, kidnapping them, firing at them with rocket propelled grenades, with hurling grenades at them firing automatic rifle fire, for them, it, it resembles a war. And they will talk about it in military terms, in warlike military terms, if we're fighting an insurgent enemy using guerrilla tactics against us. So, But I think you know it is a blur of crime and war uh, that we struggle to deal with. There also, also are there some some like legal issues that stop people wanting to, to make this into a war or call it a war. There's the issue for the United States, for example, of refugees fleeing the violence in Latin America. If they were to say it's an actual war zone, it would make their claims for refugee status much stronger. There are many people right now from Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador, arriving on the U.S. border and claiming refugee status. And some of them are getting it. But the U.S. courts are scared of opening the floodgates to many more asylum seekers from these countries, if you were to say they were war zones. And also, I mean, the U.K., London has the biggest uh, Latin American population in Europe after uh, Madrid and, and Barcelona. I'm Eric Schlosser, and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture.
1: Describing these groups as not having ideologies, I think, brings us nicely on to the first country I want to look at that you talk about in the book, which is Brazil. And actually, the gang that you talk about here does have sort of roots in that sort of revolutionary politics. So tell us who who the Red Commando are and what their interesting history is.
2: So, sure. So going into Rio de Janeiro and, and, and seeing these crazy scenes um, that you see in some of the favelas, the slums of Rio de Janeiro, of armed groups openly operating in these areas. I mean, guys walking around with assault rifles openly uh, and you walk in these places, these funk crazy funk dances they put on uh, where everyone's dancing with their rifles and you really see this kind of alternate power and selling drugs openly off the table. You know, you walk up on the table and they're selling cocaine, crack, marijuana, very openly. So I was very interested in you know, how this came about and where they came from. And this name itself, Red Commando, has this kind of thing you think about. Like, it sounds like a guerrilla group, Red Commando, like an old communist guerrilla group. So, so looking into this, uh, I went back and, and talked to one of the founders and interviewed, uh, you know, very in depth is this guy called William da Silva, who founded this group with other people on a prison island in Brazil back in the 1970s. And it came about when the Brazilian military dictatorship locks up left-wing guerrillas with criminals from the slums with bank robbers and and other drug dealers and and people from from these ghetto areas. Now, the Brazilian dictatorship figured at the time that the ghetto criminals would really beat the hell out of and rape and really demoralize the political prisoners. But the opposite happened. The political prisoners began to organize the ghetto criminals and so they formed together this group they called the red commando actually first of all one of the prison directors named it said this is the red commando and they began to adopt the name themselves Uh, and they started in the prison system started saying we've got laying down rules now one of the problems in brazilian prisons and in prisons right across latin america is you have thousands and thousands of violent criminals locked up in horrific conditions i mean you know, we're talking about shit all over, the, you know, war in the cells, guys being raped, you know, you know in front of people, uh, you know, people being stabbed up, shot, you know, so really horrific conditions. And what the Red Commander did was they organized prisoners and gave prisoners often a bit of security. For some weaker prisoners who could not defend themselves against violent predators, they could be in a Red Commander and have a group defend themselves, the group saying, look, you can't touch this guy, you can't mess with him. Prisoners have their wives come in for conjugal visits. If they don't have the support of some group, they're risking their wives being raped. So they really helped organize prisoners now they had this kind of left-wing rhetoric from the left-wing guerrillas. You know, this idea of we're fighting for the poor against the rich. You know, we're fighting the system. Now, afterwards, there was a, an amnesty in Brazil. The political prisoners were let go. Uh, and among old political prisoners, there's Dilma, the current president of Brazil. She was a guerrilla and it was imprisoned back in the 1970s. But the, 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 the political prisoners were let go and, and kind of left this movement and abandoned and cut off links with the ghetto criminals, but the Red Commando stayed and kept on having this name. Now, later on, they got massively into the cocaine trade. They made deals with the FARC over in Colombia, the, the left-wing guerrilla movement in, in Colombia. And they got big into the cocaine trade and and, and and became this group. Now, now, talking to the guys now, and I, I spent time in these favelas talking to both what they call the soldiers, you know, the guys with the guns, and with some of the dons of the favelas, the people who run whole favelas and organize all of the gunmen, organize the drug selling. And they don't have much of a real ideology left. They still have code, They still have certain values and see themselves as standing up for the poor fighting the system if they're not actually sitting down there reading Karl Marx.
1: Where are they now then? So let's talk about what the situation is on the ground in, say, Rio. I mean, I know they're also in Sao Paulo as well, but let's talk about the favelas in in Rio, which they control. So what's the situation like?
2: So in Rio, as the commando grew, it grew right across the favelas in all of Rio state. Now, Rio state includes the city of Rio de Janeiro and other towns outside. And they basically filled up, the commandos filled up pretty much all the favelas in these areas. Then they, what happened was they splintered and started to break off. So you've got one group becoming a group called Amigos dos Amigos, another group called Tercer Comando. And they're basically part of the same guys who splintered off over fighting over different drug profits. So you had this crazy battleground with different commandos controlling different favelas and having this kind of urban war among them. At the same time, the police fighting an urban war in the favelas, And, you know, it's a really crazy, intense situation. You know, you have these communities with very narrow streets and police go in there having very fierce gunfights with them. Now, it's such an intense combat zone. that when I was down there in Rio de Janeiro and talking to police officers who go in there, Members of the Navy SEALs, the U.S. Navy SEALs, were down there getting training for the Brazilian police. Not the other way around, that they're giving training, they're receiving training, because the Brazilian police are some of the most experienced fighters in the world at this close urban combat that you see there. Now, since they you know, reached the real peak you know, in, the, in the late 20 hundreds of, of uh, control by the commandos, but since then, there's been a couple of things that have taken control away from them. One is the emergence of these groups called militias, who are these kind of self-defense groups. This is a thing, again, you see right across Latin America and the Caribbean, these armed self-defense groups of many ex-police but other people who are fighting the drug gangs and winning the territory back from them. However, they then extort the same for betters they're liberating. So it becomes like a, an opposite kind of organized crime. And they're equally just another armed group. And then you saw a big project um, known as pacification, which began after Brazil was bidding for the Olympics and the World Cup. And they realized it's very hard or embarrassing to have the Olympics there or the World Cup. And people arrive and wander into these favelas and see people openly carrying guns, openly selling drugs. So they had this idea called pacification. And they took that name, funny enough, from the Americans pacifying villages in Vietnam, winning them back from the Viet Cong. And the idea of pacification is they will announce and say, we're going to go into favela. They'll say on the radio, on the TV, we're going in, and they'll go in there, massive force, tanks, Marines, police, everything, go in there. And because they've warned the commandos, warned the drug gangs, they'll often leave then they go in there and establish a permanent presence. The thing is, they've only done this in certain more central favelas. So in those central favelas, you now see less gunmen, or you, you don't really see gunmen on the street openly in some of these central favelas that tourists could walk into. However, you still go further out where the tourists are not likely to go to, to one that I profiled in the book called Antares, for example, and you see complete open control of the commando. We've also seen the rise of these commandos spread right across Brazil and to many other cities that used to be, you know, not big issues with organized crime. Places like uh, Recife, places like, you know, way out there have become hard centers of organized
1: This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and I'm talking to Yoan Grillo, and we're talking about his book *Gangster Warlords, Drug Dollars, Killing Fields*, and the New Politics of Latin America. And Yoan, know, I want to look at the next place we're going to look at is probably the one that's most relevant to people in the UK: Jamaica. People might remember a decade or so ago there was like for about five minutes the character of the Yardie became a bit of a uh, bit of a tabloid folk devil. The story starts in this book um, in 2010 with a state of emergency being declared in Kingston. So what was happening?
2: So in, in 2010, the Jamaican government, after a long battle, released a, an order to arrest a, a major drug trafficker called Duddus Coke, <laughs> you know, aptly named Duddus Coke, also known as the president. Now, Jamaica has no president, has a prime minister. And the official head of state is Queen Elizabeth II. But for many people, the president, this guy Douglas Coke, was the real ruler of the island. You know, he was such a, a power, this guy. And they released an arrest warrant for him. Police went to storm the ghetto area where he was based, called Tivoli Gardens, on a very crazy ghetto, what's known as a garrison in Kingston. And his um, supporters, his soldiers, blockaded the entrances. With barricades and had guys with about 400 of them with automatic rifles on these barricades and, and all these crazy booby traps. And there's also other supporters start attacking the police from behind. So the Jamaican government declared a state of emergency, brought the army out and stormed this ghetto area. Uh, some of his people fired 50 cal at aeroplanes, causing some airplane you know, a lot of flights to be cancelled. And they eventually stormed in there. And when they did storm in there, the soldiers uh, and police committed a massacre, killed at least 73 people in this area, a lot of whom were not his soldiers, probably uh, innocent people. Uh, and he escaped and then was eventually arrested about a month later at a police roadblock dressed in drag as, uh, uh, with a wig on. And he was uh, said he was going to the US embassy and he... Uh, he actually waived his right to be extradited, to be extradited, and was taken to the US, where he is still in prison right now.
1: And so, I want to talk about where he came from because his father, Dennis's father, was a guy who he was called Jim Brown. That obviously wasn't his name. He was named after a, a character in a film. But let's talk about who he was. So, understanding the violence in
2: Jamaica, you know, you have to look at the politics. In Jamaica, and the politics of these ghetto areas—they call garrisons. Now they call garrisons because they're fortified areas. You literally have—they're literally like walled off. You have often one way in, one way out, which people can control. And you see when you go into places, people putting up bricks, and you know, basically, you know uh, uh, fortified ghetto areas. And and inside these ghetto areas, you have certain strong men known as dons. And and Jim Brown was the don of the Tivoli Gardens area, one of the most important garrisons. Now, they began these dons to deliver votes for political parties. So Jim Brown was a very associated, with what's known as the Jamaican Labour Party, it was actually a more conservative party by its name. And he would deliver votes for them and stop anyone from the PNP, the more left-wing party, canvassing in that area. That's how they began as, as these kind of political racketeers, but they got into more crime. So Jim Brown then, with some other associates, formed the Shower Posse, and they were bring large amounts of marijuana, crack cocaine, cocaine powder cocaine to the United States, and bring loads of guns back to Jamaica. So they had, on one side, on the island of Jamaica, this political racketing, this control of a neighbourhood, which then spread also to extortion and other, and other things. On the other side, part of a an international drug trafficking operation. And now Dallas Coke, they know, expanded as well and bought a lot of cocaine to England itself. They were packing loads of cocaine on planes, often women hiding it in their private parts on planes to to England as well.
1: So you mentioned the political lobbying situation that was where they came out of. And there were these two... You know, giant political figures, Michael Manley and Edward Seeger, who were the, the, the leaders of those two political parties that you mentioned for a long period of Jamaican politics. To what extent were they, you know, aware of the sort of extracurricular activities of, of these dons?
2: When, when you look at the ghetto violence done in, in Jamaica, it's, it was quite heavily documented in a, in a parliamentary report, finally, and, and it, it very clearly, you know, made this very clear it was happening. However, a lot of the, the, the real details of exactly who was funding the money, who was funding the guns, have never been that documented. It's hard for the system to investigate itself. I think both Siaga and Manly had to understand clearly about the violence their supporters were committing in these ghetto areas. Now, how much they were, you know, particularly involved in actually passing the money down, because these groups of gunmen were paid and were armed. I mean, I you know, interviewed these. Guys heavily, you know, very, very um, intensely they describe how they got into this, so how they got their regular wages, how they were given firearms. So, you know, it's hard to often establish exactly where they was coming from. And there's a lot of accusations that even the CIA was funneling guns and money to some of these people. Cause it was sub- the United States supported Siaga uh, and the right wing against the left. Uh, other accusations that Cuba was supporting, you know, the other side. Um, but I think, you know, politicians uh, realistically are very aware of this. And you know, if you look at the case of Jim Brown, his lawyer was a Labour Party politician, you know, his own, his own lawyer. Siaga, you know, went to his funeral. <laughs> so, so these are the kind of things that give ways. And later on with Dudders Coke, when he rose up, you have Bruce Golding, who admitted under pressure that he had met and sat down with the guy. So you obviously have these links that are quite established there.
1: And these Dons, unlike a lot of the other gangster warlords that we, we've talked about and will talk about, are sort of much more like Marlon Brando Godfather type figures in that they're seen as benevolent within the garrison. Yes,
2: yeah, certainly. It's one of the um, first things. When, when, when I arrived, arrived in Jamaica and, and I was taken to the house of the family of, of Dada's Coke and started talking to his aunt and his cousins, and one of the first things they said is, you know, a benefactor of the community so that's that's like a the words but it is true that often people will see them that way in these areas people will describe the things that dada's coke's men will do when it was time for kids to go back to school there would be the soldiers of dada's coke standing there handing out pencil cases school bags school books and what they need now that is very very important to poor people in these ghetto areas People will say that they will provide them with food. You know, one guy said, "Like when I'm hungry, he'll take it away." Now, somebody who takes hunger away from a person starving an area will really win their support. And as well as those things, you know, there'll be the the parties put on. I mean, some of the best parties in Jamaica were in Tivoli Gardens, and there will be these you know big big passer passer parties, as they're known as. These massive dancehall parties with the the best dancehall reggae artists from around the island playing there, and this was. Provided for again by, by the Sharps, possibly by the Don, who had his own had his own entertainment music company. So that would win you know massive support from these people, and also the same musicians would then sing many songs idolizing the president, idolizing Darius So There's a whole bunch of songs, including one by Bunny Whaler, the um, step brother of Bob Marley, Bunny Whaler, uh, wrote a song called don't touch the president and he made some interesting lyrics in that where he says sometimes out of evil comes good so like out of the evil of drug money you can make it good charity and he says can't you see the difference in the neighborhood so like uh you know big support there and this idolization in songs which spread the name of Dudas coke far and wide
1: and you talked to one of dallas's soldiers a guy called cammy who was he and what was that like to talk to him
2: so, you know, I actually talked to various gunmen in, in Tivoli Gardens and other areas. I, I focused particularly in the book on this guy, Cami, who was very interesting because he was an older guy. I talked to some young guys who are 15 years old and, and, and who'd already committed several murders and how they said they already had several duppies. Duppies um, means spirit. And when they say they have duppies, it's like they're putting these, they're claiming their spirits. But this guy, Cami, was very interesting because he was old, he was in his early 50s, and his life and his career as a gunman really spanned through all this time. And as an older guy, he was a bit more measured, a bit more thoughtful, you know, had reflected a lot of these things now. And to be fair, he was somebody who was a, a very friendly, interesting guy. Now, I've, I've talked to many of these killers across Latin America and the Caribbean often they can actually be quite friendly and it is a strange contradiction there. Um, there are people who commit evil acts uh, but they might not be openly evil as individuals. You know, we, we can debate about how their life pushed them on that direction, how they were grown up and recruited into this world in many ways, were trained to kill and it's kind of hard to find a way out. In a way, they, they do make their choices. I mean, you know, like cabby, like anyone else, has chose to commit a whole series of murders but was also kind of born into this area. So, so he was somebody who was recruited all the way back, going back to the nineteen seventies. Uh, was recruited as a, a political gunman. Uh, was part of a, was actually in, in, a, in a ghetto called the South Side, which was close to Tivoli Gardens, but not exactly in Tivoli Gardens. And he, he was recruited uh, there back in the nineteen seventies. He's actually half what they call East Indian, uh, meaning somebody from India with 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 with, with of somebody from India. With also a mix of, of Afro in him, and, and like considered himself a Rastafarian, was into the whole you know Rastafarian um, ideas. But then you know, he um, was recruited when he was very young, committed political murders in, in this fighting on the side of the on the side of the Labour Party, um, and then went to the United States in 1980. I went to the United States uh, on a false green card, and within 24 hours there, had gunned down two people from a rival Latin Kings gang on a corner. Um, and became a soldier for the shower posse in the United States uh, as a muscle. You know, other people were there selling crack. He was, you know, if there was anybody who owed money to them or they would often want to seize cocaine. They hear about a, uh, some cocaine coming from in, and they rob it from somebody else. Um, was imprisoned in the United States, not for all of his murders, but for uh, having a gun and being caught with some drugs. Spent some time in a prison in Kentucky where he describes some some crazy scenes there where he would have a fight with some big redneck and he stabbed a cigarette in his eye Um, and then was released from prison and went back to Jamaica and and worked with Dados in Jamaica and became more of a leader of other younger soldiers there and and described what it was like, described how he would also carry out punishment beatings, people who committed what were called antisocial crimes in the area. So some guys were accused of rape. And he got them in a place with, with sticks and got some of the family members of the girls who'd been raped, gave them sticks, and they beat the hell out of these guys. And it was a way of enforcing uh, a kind of order inside the community. game is a very, very important aspect of what Dudas Coke does and what the, all these gangs do. It's about you know controlling, filling in the space where the government has kind of left these, these areas. And, and he was also involved in that violence afterwards when um, the government tried to seize Dadas. He was involved in that whole attacks on the police uh, and that attempt to, to seize him in the storming of Tivoli Gardens. I'm Natalie Haynes. You're listening to Resonance FM. And this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
1: Now, you just mentioned there that he, you know, he traveled to the United States and, you know, ended up in some ways involved with gangs in in the United States. And I I want to sort of use that to move us on to the next area, which is the the Northern Triangle, which covers El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. And this is a, a classic example of something that's come out of... The proxy battles of the Cold War and the way that the gangs that are now operating in across all of those three countries were formed is such a bizarre story. Like, there's lots of these examples where I said it's come out of the Cold War, but also you can sort of see the sort of meddling of of the US in in these other countries. This one really takes a biscuit, I think. So, tell us how the the Maras and the Barrio 18 gangs how they formed.
2: So, so back in the eighties, you had this very brutal civil war in El Salvador. And back in, the, you know, again, go go back to talking about El Salvador, the movie El Salvador, following that, and you had this very um, effective left-wing guerrilla movement fighting an American-backed regime. Both sides were very brutal. Uh, the army was, you know, were very was recruiting children, and the guerrillas were recruiting children, um, and you know, carrying out all kinds of massacres. So, a very violent situation. So, many young people would flee from the map and would go to the United States. Now, when often these, you know, particularly if you, were, if you were 14, 15 years old in El Salvador in the 1980s, you know, you could be recruited by the army, recruited by the guerrillas, killed, all kinds of things. So many teenagers particularly left the country and arrived in the United States, mainly in Los Angeles. Now, when these guys arrived in LA, they often found no support network for them. The families were, you know, were really busy. Like, you know, I talked to profile one guy who very similar situation there, who who arrived there. And his aunts were working. He stayed with his aunts, but they were getting up at 3 in the morning to work in food trucks. And they were like, we've got no money. You've got to fend for yourself. So these old people, you know, he, like like many, ended up on the streets, basically um, hustling, sleeping rough, and joined the gang for self-defense. Now, in L.A., you had the African-American gangs, particularly the Bloods and the Crips, very, very established, and a bunch of Mexican-American gangs. Uh, you know, very established there. Um, but the Salvadorans were like a new group, when we're often very, you know, bullied. I mean, this guy you know, had the, the hell beaten out of him uh, you know, several times. I mean, you know, he suffered hard beatings. So he joined a gang to defend himself. Some of them joined a gang called the Barrio de Siocha, which was already established and accepted uh, non-Mexicans into it. So Salvadorans could join us, could people from the Philippines or India or other countries. But others formed a new gang that they called the Mara Salvatrucha, now, funny enough, some of the first guys there were like rockers. They were wearing like, you no know, jeans and had long hair and were going to Black Sabbath concerts, among things, and would go there and do these devil horn signs that were done in Black Sabbath concerts. And they came out and that became the gang sign. So it kind of came out this doesn't sound too serious. But this gang that began as a few kids on a street corner to defend themselves grew as more people arrived from the Civil War who were battle hardened. You had a lot of ex-soldiers, you had people being in the guerrillas, people just seeing really incredibly intense things. But on the streets of L.A., they started using machetes as their kind of trademark, hacking people up and machetes and guns. Many were sent to prison, and in prison they affiliated with a prison gang there known as La Eme, uh, the Mexican Mafia. With this affiliation there, they, they, they gained more power on the streets. And eventually, when it got to 1992, the Civil War finished finally. And the US started realizing the gang violence was a real problem in Los Angeles, and mass uh, Maas Alvatruccio were a big part of it, and it started deporting them on a very large scale, any way it could. So as these gang members were deported back and they spoke Spanglish and had these crazy tattoos and you know were you know really violent, you had a heart had no skills, were deported back to this shattered Central American nation, they immediately recruited other members and very quickly overwhelmed the police. And again, even more ex-soldiers and ex-guerillas um, who have been you know, disbanded or been demobbed in El Salvador went to these gangs, and they became more and really overwhelmed the government and grew and grew until now you see in El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, the whole what's called the Northern Triangle of Central America, these gangs just completely overwhelming police forces and shaking down businesses and causing real mayhem, real bloodshed in these countries, making them some of the most violent places on the planet.
1: How about those gangs? Or oh, they have like an organisational structure. Tell us how that works and how the, um, what's called jumping in, the method of how you would join one of those gangs.
2: So uh, the Mara Albatrucha ha- has an organisation on, on a local level, what they call cliques or clicas. And a clique or clica is, is, is a group which controls a neighbourhood, a barrio, a neighbourhood. Uh, and of that, you'll have the head of the clique uh, is called. Uh, funny enough, he who holds the world, or, or the, the shot caller, it's the person who will, who will speak for the group. And here's the head, and then he has a, a, a right-hand man, and then various hardcore members around him, maybe fifty to a hundred to one hundred fifty hardcore members around him in one clique. Now, when somebody wants to join, first of all, somebody will hang around the gang. And might do other jobs for them, like on a corner reporting to them. And then to join the gang inside Central America, you almost always have to commit at least one, sometimes several murders. They call them missions. So we'll send you on missions and say, OK, go and kill this guy who's dealing drugs on our turf and is not paying us the quota he has to pay to deal drugs on our turf or go and kill this person who is failing to pay extortion to us, or go and kill this rival gang member who's been doing things near us. And then after they've committed those murders, they still have to go through a process called jumping in, where they will go for a a shout of 13. Other members will beat the hell out of them with fists, kicks, even sticks. Uh, And they can sometimes die in this process of initiation. It's a very brutal way. And it kind of... It's interesting that it kind of has this role, they have a, you know, you see this kind of role of, of the gang members of being both victims and victimizers. On one side are poor kids growing up in a very brutal environment who are victims in many ways, but they become very predatory and very violent and very much hurt their communities. It's kind of weird, this initiation where you see themselves both having to receive the pain and deliver the pain. And I, I interviewing various gang members and you know, interviewed, you know, more than 20 members of the through to 13 in Honduras and El Salvador, they can be friendly, but they are scary people as well. I mean, these are people, when you look at them, they have a hard stare. Sometimes you're talking about kids, 16-year-old kids who have already committed multiple murders and have these really hard penetrating stares. And it is sometimes hard to fathom that capacity for violence they have. Uh, at a very young age.
1: I was going to say there's a conversation like, you have conversations with you know gang members all the way through this book, but one of the most chilling I thought was a conversation you have with a kid who's called Montana um, in that section who is exactly as you have described. I mean, got into the life as a kid. You describe him having killed people, but still being at high school.
2: Yeah, so I mean, Montana he calls himself Montana after the movie Scarface. Al Pacino, you know, it's kind of weird uh, mix of of fantasy and reality there. Uh, But he committed a first murder when he was 13, committed a second murder when he was 14, a paid hit for the gang for the Mara when he was 14, uh, and and then committed another execution when he he was 14. So you have these kids who are at school and teachers are sitting in classes with kids who have committed multiple murders, and the teachers are scared of the kids. You know, I went to the, this this is in Honduras, and a lot of these school teachers were, were scared to talk to me about this issue because they were really scared of, you know, that they could be seen cited in a book or cited in a newspaper talking to the press about them, and they might arrive at school and be murdered. They could be murdered outside their home for doing something that was perceiving as disrespecting one of these kids. So... So very frightening. And inside these neighborhoods, they have an intense power. You know, they will go to businesses and make them pay. Uh, and, you know, you talk to people. I know I know one guy in Honduras who's actually a journalist and a, a translator, professional guy. He has to pay to Maris Alvacruccia. And you know, I said, you know, you pay. He says, look, I've got two choices. I pay or I leave. So, you know, the, the, the threat of violence is so strong in a country where, with a very weak police force, with very weak courts. The threat is so strong uh, from there. And, uh, but also looking at you know, the individual kids uh, like Montana growing up in this area, grew up with this violence around him. His dad was killed, um, and he says that one of the reasons he joined the gang, or, or he says the main reason, was to take revenge for his father being killed. So you grow up in you know, with this violence around you, and the gangs have such an incredible presence in these areas. The government is often seems to be absent, but the gangs are there and they're saying no, you can be somebody, you can make money, you can be a power, you can have some opportunity.
1: As usual in these cases, we don't know the extent to which, you know, the governments in these countries are implicated in a lot of this stuff. And there's an interesting story here in which there is actually a truce brokered between some of the gangs. So tell us what happened there.
2: So in El Salvador, when the old guerrilla group from the 1980s was actually elected, the FMLN was elected into power. And when they got into power, they were saying, "How do we deal with this issue of gangs and violence?" And some members had, you know, said, "We, well, where well, we should look at talking to these gang members." This was never, you know, and they, they created this this gang truth. They went into the prisons, and there was a military chaplain involved as well, and they sat. They got gang members sitting down together. guess, it, like, you know, you guys can reduce the killing. The level of killing is, is off the chart. You guys can turn down, you know, the button on this. You can turn the, the notch on this and, and, and bring it down. And they did. Uh, and it was the, the, the two main gangs, the Barre de Siocho and the Massa so we're going to give orders to, to not kill each other. And the killings were halved rapidly. However, um, you know, what began as something quite impressive and some ways looked like it could open the door for a new way of dealing with this violence in Latin America and the Caribbean. So we have to, you have to sit down and talk with the gangs and negotiate. Soon fell apart. And, you know, one problem was that the government had not done this openly. They'd been secretive about it. Certain factions of the government supported it. Others criticised it. And the public began to criticise it intensely. You know, how are you dealing with how are you negotiating with gang members who are, who are killing our family members? Who are shaking us down on the street? How can you negotiate with these people? So the criticism became very, very hard, and the government soon backed away. And the gang members themselves, you know, after the initial thing, there was no real alternative economic plan provided for them. They were ne- there was never like you know, there was ideas spoken about. Oh, we're also going to have some social work and give something to them, but there was never real plan put into action and so the violence came back and has come back with a vengeance and last year was absolutely horrific in El Salvador this year continues to be the same a really violent place off the chart bloodshed now uh, and the gang truce really falling apart
1: you're listening to little atoms i'm neil denny i'm talking to joan grillo and we're talking about his book gangster warlords drug dollars killing fields and the new politics of latin america we're going to move on to to mexico for the last part of the show and as i said Yoan, that's obviously where you're working so you're more sort of i guess closest on a day-to-day basis to this world in the book you tell the story of a guy called nazario moreno his rise and fall and I'm not actually going to ask you to, because we're sort of running out of time, so I'm not going to go into too much detail about his story. People could read that in the book. It's a, it's a crazy story. But one of the reasons for his downfall was the thing that happened, He also sort of mentioned it happening in Brazil, was the rise of sort of vigilante movements and militia movements within the country, people that had that had, had enough. So let's tell about what happened there.
2: So in the state of Michoacán in Mexico, uh, you had this cartel led by Nassar Moreno called the Knights Templar, who were particularly predatory. They were shaking people down, you know, asking for quotas for all kinds of businesses. But all, they got to the level where they were asking people for money, saying, well, you've got a big house, well, you're going to have to pay us. You've got a new car, you have to pay us. You've got a new TV, you have to pay us. And even beyond that, the allegation that they were also committing systematic rape that they would go to people's houses for the extortion money and say, pay us and I'm going to take your daughter away for a couple of weeks. Waiting outside schools, looking at, you know, what girls they wanted to take and then kidnapping them. So that was one of the accusations of what really, it was the kind of straw that broke the camel's back in this. So people said, look, we just, we had enough. The government is not protecting us. We're going to defend ourselves. We're going to get guns and defend ourselves. And what began as a dozen guys going down to a market where the Shakedown guys would come and collect money and chasing them off with guns, erupted into this movement with thousands of armed militias known as auto defensas or self-defence squads, uh, getting to perhaps 10,000 of these guys, taking on the Knights Templar, and having this crazy conflict where they built trenches and then the Knights Templar would lose these areas. The, the vigilantes would storm areas from the Knights Templar with you know, and the government would just sit there watching this crazy conflict raging over um, a year in these areas. Now, it, it, in many ways, I was quite inspired at the beginning, like many people. It seemed like you know, these are um, self-defense leaders, are heroes in some ways, fighting, standing up to a brutal menace. But you later saw that these guys became very dubious and uh, you had many criminals themselves in the guise of these vigilantes. And they would have their own roadblocks, you know, with guys, kids with machetes, guys with guns, stopping you, searching your vehicle and then taking some people away who disappeared. So it gets to a bad situation when you allow anybody to be carrying guns. Um, You know, it's not a real solution to this problem. But in the short term, they really shattered, really smashed the Knights Templar cartel.
1: I want to talk about again about how the government coexists really with these cartels. Mexico is obviously a, a extremely rich country. In the same way that we talked about, you know, the pacification in Brazil, because you know Brazil is becoming a serious economic power in the world. They've got the World Cup this year, the Olympics, um, and you know Jamaica also. All three of these places are places where I could fly over there and have a nice couple of weeks on a beach somewhere in a lovely holiday resort, and yet. A few hundred miles up the road is a city that's got the highest murder rate in the world.
2: Yes. Yeah, so I mean that, that nuance I think is very important to get you know, it, it is strange. Mexico's got a trillion dollar economy. It's not we're not talking about some real poor banana republic in Mexico. Um, it's got a trillion dollar economy, um, it's got massive tourist destination, oil production, factories, all of these things, got billionaires, you know, Carlos of the richest people in the world. It has got a big middle class in Mexico as well, world class universities. And you have these, these weird nuances where you go. Now, Mexico City itself is not that dangerous. Mexico City's got about the same murder rate as Boston in the United States. Uh, Yucatan State has about the same murder rate as Belgium. You people go to the resorts of Cancun and you know have a great time and absolutely nothing happens. They're safer than most American cities and many British cities. But then you have these very, very violent areas at the same time. And even in the violent areas, you have people living with this violence. I've been to, a, went to one restaurant where there was a shooting in the morning. We arrived you know, minutes after the guy had been shot. A police officer had been mm-hmm. shot dead by a guy with an AK-47, blood all over the restaurant, people in panic. But then eventually it was cleared up. And the restaurant opened for lunch, so people you could arrive for lunch wouldn't even know the murder would happen in the morning. You have this kind of weird, normal life happening around this violence. But governments basically, the governments are extremely confused on how to deal with this and don't have a coherent plan. Neither the governments of Latin American and the Caribbean countries, nor Washington or the international community, have a clear strategy. You know, on one side, we've got this failed. Drug prohibition policy continuing, and a continuing um, you know, attempts to burn crops, to grab drug shipments, to uh, imprison the major drug traffickers. Um, on the other side, you've got you know courts giving asylum to refugees fleeing this violence. So you know, real confused, and governments swaying all over the map. Sometimes they'll throw out you know hard military strikes and often the military and the police will commit horrific human rights abuses. And sometimes they'll just simply you know, pull out and just go into a denial mode saying, no, it's not really that bad. Uh, the organized crime is not really that, you know, not really here. This in a few isolated places and everything's ticking away smoothly. So, you know, one of the things, you know, I, I, I think I and many other journalists hope with this work is to try and push towards more coherent policies From governments and you know more coherent thinking about this issue and understand this is one of the big issues of the 21st century. The the issue of organized crime violence going beyond borders, overwhelming governments, is a big issue. It's massive right now in Latin America, but it could also spread to many other countries around the world. You know, and and places like Europe, United States could suffer much bigger problems of this in the future.
0: I'm Tom Barbash, and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture.
1: Clearly, there's obviously huge issues of economy of the as inequality and poverty and things that are major causes of this. But obviously, there's the war on drugs as well. So clearly, drug law reform would be a step forward.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm i totally in favour of drug policy reform. Drug policy reform you know, meaning moving forward you know right now we're living through an exciting moment an exciting time of change in drug policy over the last five years you we've know, seen all kinds of things happening Washington State Colorado Oregon Alaska legalizing marijuana DC legalizing marijuana Uruguay legalizing marijuana and big changes port experiment in Portugal all kinds of things happening now saying that you know I, I mean, I'm totally in favor and I think you know drug policy reform is very very important but it's not simply this we have a big debate about how we move forward but now i believe that the debate about marijuana has largely been won and we should move forward with legalization of marijuana on a wide scale to legalize marijuana in the uk have a, a more bigger legal market in mexico and the united states and really get organized crime out of this business well you know once we get past the idea of marijuana then we get to the more difficult issues of cocaine heroin Crystal meth and other drugs. You know, we could move on to cocaine. At the discussion point after marijuana is the drug which generates the most money. Cocaine creates an ridiculous amounts of money. But you know, I do understand that the idea of legalising harder drugs is difficult, and the issue of dealing with addiction is difficult. And you know, one thing we can agree on at least now is we need to really. Focus on and work on rehabilitation treatment, make it more widely available, free, so, so that you could at least get people who are, who are real problematic drug users, you can get some of them away from it. But, you know, there's still tough questions there. There's a tough debate that we need to have and, and keep having now. The debate has changed, but many of these policies still are in place. There's still a lot of architecture which enforces prohibitionist policies. You still have the DEA. You still have the drugs are in the United States. You still have the UNODC with a largely prohibitionist approach or with a prohibitionist approach. You still have the the, the Narcotics, International Narcotics Control Board. These things people might never have heard of, but these bureaucracies out there enforcing this war on drugs approach. So we need to really change that and change the architecture to make it catch up with the conversation that has changed on on this issue.
1: And of course, if... Overnight, drugs were legalised. Those guys that currently are running that industry would still be there. So what can be done to get people out of the gang life?
2: So I think there's, there's two other big things we need to do, regardless of what happens with drug policy or in addition to drug policy. Uh, one is, you, know, you you have to have real police forces, real justice systems in the country. Now, you, you realise covering this and living around latin america and the caribbean how important it is to have a semi-functioning police at least you know i grew up in england and didn't like the police much when i grew up and was a big critic of police being racist thugs but moving over here you see how good the police are there in comparison and how you know if you have a, a completely corrupt police like many in mexico where the police are themselves committing murders themselves working for cartels decapitating people burning up bodies and Kinds of crazy stuff. You know, people, you're scared of the police and criminals get away with murder and they get away with, you know, they can go to your house and kidnap people's children and torture them on video and do horrific things. So you have to build police forces and justice systems that can work. Now, when we had this end of the Cold War, there was a big move in the international community to support elections, and, you know, all these electoral observers are Yeah, we've got to support free elections and we've got to support free markets, but not the idea of we've got to build justice systems that work. And that has to be a big part of international policy for a safe and stable planet. You can't. It's not enough to, to say the world's all right as long as you have democracy, as long as you have free markets. No, you've got to have working police forces, working justice systems to have a more stable planet. And the other thing is, you know, these ghetto areas, you know, these mass, these slums, favelas in Brazil, the garrisons in Jamaica, the comunas in, in Colombia, these slum areas, you know, these massive ghetto areas. That should not be, you know, part of our planet, this massive exclusion of large amounts of humanity. Now, obviously, this gets to big questions of how we challenge the economic system. But even beyond that, you've got to look at just will and societies and governments having a will to try and rescue these areas to say, we don't want to leave the poor in ghettoised areas. We need to bring them into society, at least. And there's great social workers out there, people who can really reach these people. I mean, you know, in, in Jamaica, I talked to a guy who'd been the head of the Jamaican national football team who'd gone back to Trenchtown where he was from and was running a football club giving his heart to that work. And now that he can make a difference. He makes a massive difference. Just the will of somebody there saying, I want to offer you something to play football. Now, many of you know might only take them off the streets for a short while, give them a bit of a hope. But that hope I think is very, very important. As hopelessness is very cruel.
1: I think that's a perfect point for us to to finish so i've been talking to Yoan grillo we've been talking about gangster warlords drug dollars killing fields and the new politics of latin america which is out now from bloomsbury so Yoan, thank you so much for sharing it with us
2: no great uh, thank you very much fantastic to be here you've been listening to little atoms a radio show about ideas and culture
0: this episode of little atoms was produced and presented by neil denny and was broadcast on resonance 104.4 fm
2: the show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at LittleAtoms.
0: You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too.